This is Joshua Bell with the Kilt and the Cloth. We are continuing our Tuesday morning Bible studies today, starting at Exodus chapter 10. Um, and uh, we're, we're going to be going through uh, the, the, the rest of the plagues leading up to chapter 12 that talks specifically about the worship ritual known as Pesach, or as we know it as Passover. So uh, just a quick reminder narrative. The, the basic idea is, again, when you get to the book of Exodus, we've now established where we came from. We've now established where Joseph's lineage ends and why the Hebrews are in Egypt. And now, now we have to explain why they leave. Um, and in the process of this, um, we're also establishing a theology of God. Like this is this is how God is powerful. This is how God is creator. Um, there's some language that we have to be careful of when we get to it because it's not it's not it's not accurate from the Hebrew perspective, but it would have been accurate in the Septuagint perspective. So, like for example, one of the things that we have to be really careful about, and I and I meant to say this last week, and I just, when, I was, when I was editing my video, uh, audio, I realized I didn't say this. This is the part where we get that God is wrathful. Like you hear the language, God is wrathful. In the Hebrew culture, wrath is a human expression. Uh, God, God can't have wrath in, in, in their world. Uh, this, is, this is kind of important for you all to know. God, God is uh, creator, which means that God can create or God can take away. But God, if you put emotions with God other than parental ones, all of a sudden God becomes human, not God. So in the Hebrew world, it's really important for us to understand that God doesn't act like we do. That's why God is mysterious. That's why God is omnipotent. Um, and, and so what happens here is what, what we typically preach is this, this is the wrathful sense of God. And, and really... If you look at the way that this is written, there's no wrath here. There's there's no anger. It's an exhibit exhibit of power. If you look at it in a different lens, right? He is showing Pharaoh, the human being that literally says he is the ruler of the world that he can see. He is as close to the sun as possible. He is the God of Earth. God is exhibiting power over this human being without even blinking an eye. That's the way the Hebrews are going to teach this. But the way that Christians have taught it for centuries is this is where God's angry. This is, this is where God does punishment. God is not necessarily punishing the Pharaoh. He is exhibiting his power. And in that process, humans are going to feel as though it's punishment. Now, why does this little distinction make a big deal? Well, let's look at Ashoa or what we know is the Holocaust, right? This, this, the problem that happens is, is in that moment, everybody says, well, how could they still believe in a God? They say, well, this has been us from the very beginning. God did not uh, make Hitler do those things. Hitler chose to do those things. Humans chose to allow Hitler to continue those things. And even in the midst of those moments, God was still the creator of all things. You see, this is where it gets, and I'm, I am very much minimizing an entire group of people's culture and understanding, and it's not necessarily appropriate, but I, I, I want you to hear some of the, the Jewish scholars of that time that came out of that. You know, you all of a sudden you start to hear this, this language of that this is not, this is not God punishing us. I'm sure the human aspect is we're going to ask, where is God in the midst of this? But God's still there. And, and this, it's, uh, it's fascinating when you look at some of the writing of the time. When I went to the, the Holocaust Museum in, in Jerusalem, which was uh, very painful, uh, you look at the poetry on the walls, right? This is, this is they, they have people that are writing letters, and they've recovered the letters from the Dachau or uh, for uh, any of the um, prison camps or concentration camps. And they're like, well, where is God? And there's like a whole section there. And then 
And this person talks about this blade of grass that they could see through all of the mud and the nastiness. And the great blade of grass is growing, even being surrounded by mud and despair and destruction. The blade of grass is still there. So there, therefore, God's got to exist. Somebody else talks about how the sun came up today. It's been cloudy for the last six months. We've watched all of my family die, but somehow today when I felt like this was the last moment for me to take breath, the sun came up and the clouds went away. Even if it was for 10 minutes, that's what it said. You see, so for them, it's a different mindset. For Christians, it's not, we, we have this, this uh, Jesus person that we connect to with God. And that person was definitely human, right? But God itself was never that way. And so this is why I, I realized this in, in this. I was listening to the recording. There's a problem when we read this as wrath, as God's anger towards Pharaoh versus God's uh, positioning or exhibition of power. These are things that human beings cannot do. That's the most important part that I want you to take from this conversation. Now, human beings are talking to other human beings about if you don't do this, this is going to happen. The Hebrew scholars and even the writers of the Talmud or the Mishnah or the Mishnah would say something to the effect of God was still going to do it, even if Moses and Aaron weren't there. Because the human beings had lost their connection to God, just like in the flood. In the flood, they lost who the idea was, where God was, who God was. And here's this follower of God, Noah. He says, hey, you need to build this ark. Why should I build the ark? Well, because I told you so. And so Noah builds this ark. And then he tells, and everybody else became, remember, dumb. They couldn't, their hearts were hardened. It's the same language that's being used here. So I had to go back and look at it to make sure the people around Noah are still having their hearts hardened is the same word that they use for Pharaoh's heart being hardened here. So that's on purpose. So uh, I, I needed to say that because we as Christians always talk about God's wrath as the Hebrew Bible. And there are a lot of times that I will go with that very easily, but this, this is not that moment. Um, I, and it is. Right. This is this is how we as Christians have continued to teach it. Does it change the concept if we say that this is God's anger? I I think anger and wrath are two different things. And I was going to ask if mm -hmm. if the Jews don't believe that God is wrathful, do they believe? Is it okay for God to be angry? Yes. Yes. So what is wrath? Action. Action of because of anger, right? So they can believe that God can be angry because that's that's a God can be upset, God gets mad at them because otherwise, the theodicy of the Hebrew Bible remember the, the baseball diamond if they fall out of chesed with God and they, they, they go wandering in the wilderness, God's got to bring them back all over again. And there's a disappointment that you get from God, there's an anger. Wrath implies that God is human. Right. Um, and that God, this this is where this is for me. I think the problem that I had growing up was this is where bad theology gets created. Like God is some sort of genie floating up in a cloud, answering our wishes and dreams and our prayers. Right. So why did God let this happen at the Holocaust? Well, God has allowed us to have free will since the beginning. We are the ones that bring death and destruction, and it angers God that his creation would do that to one another. But in those moments, what happens from death and destruction? This is a hard question. Repentance. Repentance. Or you say so? Should be renewal. Should be renewal, right? So we have to repent. We then get renewed. Then what happens? Hopefully we stop our ways. We stop our ways, or we change, right? For a for a while. For a while. That's right. And then we're going to do it all back over again. I, you know, as you talk, I think of six of nine eleven. Yeah. And I remember when that happened, and years later, people were saying that was the wrath of God. 
Oh, sure. I've heard, you know, social media or different people were saying, why did God allow this to happen? And, I, and this was the wrath of God. I always get worried about this. And that's, and that's why I'm spending a little bit of time on this this morning, because this, this passage of scripture is meant to be instructional, not to be fearful, right? When they're hearing this passage of scripture, they're talking about the exhibition of God's power. But it's not to say, have the Hebrews done anything for repentance in this passage? Have you seen any of that? No. So this is not a, a moment of change. This, so it can't be a wrathful moment. It could be a, an anger moment towards Pharaoh, but more angry at my people have forgotten who I am so much so that they don't even know that this is my power, that I can do these things. So where, where, where was I going with this? So part of what happens is, is in the Hebrew culture, um, especially with things like 9-11, we, we see this, this moment where people come out of the woodworks to say, well, this is of God's doing. So I, I always try to warn people that, uh, because I know a lot of us uh, watch TV evangelists, I know that we, we listen to them, we, we, we subscribe to their stuff, and, and I, I encourage that always. But the language that they use, we, we want to be more careful of. Like when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans and a specific TV evangelist said, well, it was because they made a deal with the devil long, long ago. And this is, the, that this is their punishment because it's God's wrath. Massive TV evangelist said that. Huge guy. When he, Haiti was struck by the earthquake, same guy said something to the effect of, well, this is because they made a deal with the devil and that they had it coming. You know, like this is this is how that works. When you use God in that nature, that no longer becomes God; it becomes your opinion. Um, and so I, I have I have the responsibility to be careful of how I talk about God. You know, especially with all of you, in the sense of saying, I don't, I don't. I mean, I know such a small infinitesimal understanding of God compared to all the rest of the world. Uh, that my job is then to find ways of connection, not uh, detachment, separation. separation, you know. And so if, if I'm preaching that from the pulpit, I have, I have done you a disservice. So that's the pressure I have on Sunday mornings. And those folks that sometimes are on the TV don't have that pressure because they have none of this connection. They don't have to worry about people falling. They, they, they're, they should. Well, they should. <laughs> you, you would think so. You would think so, but they don't. That's not their, they, they have a very charismatic persona. They have uh, some education. They have a good, but they, they know that they've got this group for about 10 minutes and their job is very specific to bring as many people to God and as possible in the 10 minutes or what. And you and I all know what sells on the media is the same thing that's going to sell on TV for ministry. And I hate to be that guy, but this is that I've heard this passage used as the punishment for everyone on earth. That's not the way the Hebrew Bible scholars are going to interpret this. It's also through the TV, he can't see. He can't see you. That's right. And you can't hold his feet to the fire. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Although we have. We have. We've, we've found those that have been on TV that have proclaimed good works, and we found them to be false idols or false prophets, and they have been held accountable, and they've been arrested, and they've been tried by a, period, a, a group of their own peers um, and and we you all witnessed that in the 70s and the 80s you know uh, and I think the problem with it is today is they got smarter so th those those some of those and I'm not saying all of them some of them uh, just are using their brains they're not managing their own money right they're they have an, a smart person taking care of the stuff that's going to go in the dumpster um, so uh, I, I get very I, I'm very passionate about it because then Josh's wrath comes out when I find somebody that uh, could be 110 years old and was sending their last two cents to this person that I know for a fact is, is going to use that two cents for something ill-gotten uh, and they did it in the name of God I think a lot of them instill fear in people very much fear so. that 
if they don't do this, then they will get struck by the wrath of God. You know? And this is the passage that they use. This is why I'm making such a big deal out of this. Now remember, now I started this discussion. The goal for this is to get to Pesach at this point. We want to talk about Passover, their most powerful <laughs> worship ritual in the Jewish faith. So let's get there. Here we go. Let's it's start really, chapter it's 10. It's really sad that there's so many people that are claimed to be Christians that are so lost. Oh, my gosh. It's awful. Wow. I don't worry about them. That's their problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's still sad. It's it because they had to get there somehow. It's true. Well, it says, then the Lord said to Moshe, Moshe, sorry, Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart in the hearts of his courtiers, in order that I may display these my signs among them, and that you may recount in the hearing of your sons and uh, of your sons how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I displayed my signs among them. Boom! I could have just read that, and I, we wouldn't have had to have the ten minute discussion. <laughs> in order that you may know that I'm the Lord. See, exhibition of power. This is not anger. Um, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Now, now we're getting to that. Let my people go that they may worship me. For if you refuse to let my people go, tomorrow I will bring locusts on your territory. Yes, we totally skipped this. They shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They shall devour the surviving remnant that was left to you after the hail. And they shall eat away all your trees that grow in the field. Moreover, they shall fill your palaces and the houses of all your courtiers and all the Egyptians, something in, that neither your fathers nor fathers' fathers have seen from the day that they appeared on earth to this day. With that, he turned and left Pharaoh's presence. I love that dramatic exit. <laughs> and Pharaoh's courtiers said to him, how long shall this be one? Shall this one be a snare to us? Let the men go to worship the Lord, their God. Are you not aware that Egypt is lost? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, go worship the Lord, your God. Who are the ones to go? Who are the ones to go? Moses replied, we will all go, young and old. We will go with our sons and daughters, our flocks and our herds, for we must observe the Lord's festival, which, by the way, just, just a side note, had not been established yet. <laughs> Right. The, Lord's festival. the Lord's festival had oh, not wow. been established yet. So this is an interesting turn of phrase. The uh, this is a proof that this is this is an afterthought. We yes. we we've been established culture. Now we ought to write it down. So this is the establishment of that culture. So verse ten. But he said to them, <clears throat> "The Lord be with you, the same as I need to let your children go with you." Clearly, you were bent on mischief. No, you men folk go and worship the Lord since that is what you want. And they were expelled from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, hold out your arm over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat up the grasses in the land, whatever the hail has left. So Moses held out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord drove an east wind over the land, all that day and all night. And when morning came, the east wind had brought uh, had brought the locusts. And locusts invaded all the land of Egypt and settled within all the territory of Egypt in a thick mass. Never before had there been so many, nor will there ever be so many again. You hear that repetitional statement, right? They hid all the land from view, and the land was darkened. And they ate up all the grasses of the field and all of the fruit of the trees, which the hail had left, so that nothing green was left of tree or grass of the field in all of the land of Egypt. Pharaoh hurriedly summoned Moses and Aaron and, and said, I stand guilty before the Lord your God and before you. Forgive my offense just this once and plead with the Lord your God that he but remove this death from me. So he left Pharaoh's presence, and he pleaded with the Lord. The Lord caused the shift to a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and hurled them into the sea of reeds. Not a single locust remained in all of the territory of Egypt. Now that is an exhibition of power, if I've ever seen it. But the Lord stiffened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. So we're just going to pause for just a second, because we've got to get to the darkness. <clears throat> 
uh, just 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 a very brief statement. Notice that there's a, a repetitious statement. Hold out your arm. He holds out the rod, even though God tells him to hold out his arm. He says, hold out your rod. This is a, a Levitical priest thing, right? The Levitical priest was always to have to have the staff of Aaron, which was Moses's staff, which the Talmud says is the staff of Adam. These, this rod is a priestly thing, not a God thing. But the priests are the ones writing this. So this is a worship deal. So holding out your arm, this is uh, this is one of the coolest things for me as a worship guy. Is is that when we talk about worship, uh, Protestants specifically, uh, historically, have always been known to be the ones that sit on their hands, not to raise them up. Um, this is always kind of a joke. We protest so much that we sit on our hands. So if we enjoy the music, we don't clap. Uh, we don't raise our hands. The evangelicals can do that for us. That's that's one of the jokes. But here is uh, biblical ex uh, examples of using hands being raised to God. If you look at most of the Hebrew Bible stories of God being in the power of someone praying, their arms are extended upward. Do you know of any other culture that you might be aware of that does that in prayer? Besides evangelicals. Which ones? Well, I'm saying of the black people in Saudi Arabia and stuff. But Absolutely. Yeah. So Muslims raise yeah, their hands. Muslims. They raise it to the east um, to go towards Mecca. Yeah. They do that. But one that's specifically close to us, Native Americans. Native Americans do not bow their head to pray in their actual worship experience. If you look at any pictures or paintings of them from back in the 1800s, their arms in worship, their arms are extended and their face is directly towards the heavens. There are so many connections that one can make with the Native American tribes, with the tribes of Israel, because the cultures are very similar in the sense of how they were created, very nomadic, the way that they live, the way that they have this connection. <clears throat> uh, Lisa Barnett, the lady that preached for me when I was gone, um, Dr. Lisa Barnett, she is... She is a, a very strong scholar in Native American worship rituals, specifically in the United States. And so this is something that's been brought up a lot of times that for some reason, somewhere in, in, in our history, this changed to this. Something about being humble before God, even though in the Hebrew Bible, you see this being lifted up more than this. Uh, you don't look at the face of God because you'll die, right? So you humble yourself before God, which is why they bow. But every time that they're talking to God or they're acting on the behalf of God, their arms are raised and their face is towards the heavens. I'm making a big deal out of this um, because it's going to make more sense when we get to Pesach. Okay, let's keep going. Um... Then the Lord said to Moses, hold out your arm toward the sky. See, there it is. There, there may be darkness upon the land of Egypt, a darkness that cannot be touched. So Moses, this time, held out his arm toward the sky, and a thick darkness descended upon all the land of Egypt for three days. People could not see one another. And for three days, no one could let get up from where he was, but all the Israelites enjoyed light in their dwellings. Pharaoh then summoned Moses and said, go worship the Lord. Only your flocks and your herds shall be left behind. Even your children may go with you. But Moses said, you yourself must provide us with sacrifices and burnt offerings to offer the Lord our God. Again, this has not been established yet. They just are being told that they have to do this. Nobody knows that they're supposed to make burnt offerings uh, because Leviticus hasn't been written. So you see what I'm saying? This is a, a, an afterthought. Uh, but Moses said, you must provide the burnt offerings. Our own livestock, too, shall go along with us. Not a hoof shall remain behind, for we must select from it for the worship of the Lord our God, and we shall not know with what we are to worship the Lord with, until we arrive there. See, 
brilliant, brilliant writing. We don't know until we get there. <clears throat> but the Lord stiffens Pharaoh's heart, and he would not agree to let them go. Pharaoh said to them, Be gone from me. Take care not to see me again. For the moment you look upon my face, you shall die. And Moses replied, Well, you have spoken rightly. I shall not see your face again. So, um, just a, this is also a, just a side note. Do you know anything about Hanukkah? Like the, the I get presents for they get presents eight for eight days, eight days yes, specifically eight nights. The candle lighting in that that's where the menorah comes from, right? So there's eight candles on there. Mm -hmm. What's the story about the candles? Is it the eight flames? Or... It's a fascinating story, but it has nothing to do. Uh, it has nothing to do with the Exodus story and has everything to do with it. Notice that in the midst of the darkness, the Hebrews had light. God snuffed out all the light from all the rest of the people. So even the lamps couldn't be written, uh, lit in the Egyptian culture, except for the Israelites. There's this beautiful thing that in the Hebrew culture that God, you know the language, that God brings light in the darkness. Right? That's a big deal. Well, here's a really good example of that. In their houses, God has bring, brought light to them. In the, in the story of Hanukkah, in the Maccabean revolt, the, during this moment of Judas Maccabeus fighting all of these people, God did not allow the candles to be extinguished for eight nights. So there's for the menorah <laughs> is the eight moment but there's seven candles on it because why on the eighth day it's not rest but we begin again so for seven nights the candle stayed alive and then the eighth day we were uh, uh, survived so it's this 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 idea but the candles would not be extinguished throughout the whole maccabean revolt this idea that's where the Hanukkah thing comes from so why do they exchange gifts well because it's a moment for us to celebrate every single day that God has continued to give us light when the rest of the world has had been nothing but darkness and so it's this beautiful beautiful concept but you get that idea here that's my point God brought darkness upon the whole land the only one that had light was the Israelites uh how else did God speak to Moses Prior, prior to this in a burning bush in a burning bush which would be what light mm -hmm. that could not be in remember the language that could not be extinguished that's that's on purpose the reason we don't know about the reason for hanukkah then is because we don't learn about the maccabees because that's in the time between the two testaments that's exactly right and the reason that we as christians don't talk about right. it the time between the two testaments. Okay. Yeah. So Malachi, we think, probably gets done about, uh, it's a little complicated because Ma Malachi is not the last book written. I mean, yeah, they're not in order. They're not in order. Uh, probably Daniel was because it's it's written in Greek and Hebrew. Uh, Esther also is. Uh, Ruth is a little bit more of a question. But Daniel is probably the, one of the closest books to the time of the Maccabean Revolt written. And then we have this section of the Bible that uh, it's not inaccurate, it's not unbiblical, it's just that not it's in it's not in our publications. So the Apocrypha has the Maccabees, that's four, and there's actually five, and it has uh, all these stories that take place in between Daniel and the time of Christ. And the Maccabean Revolt happens around 165 BCE. And it's the only time is, is uh, the Israelites fought in battle and ruled themselves for a period of time uh, where there was no, uh, they were enslaved. And it's, it's very graphic and awful. It's Judas Maccabeus, uh, just a side note, Mendelssohn writes a, uh, uh, yeah, Mendelssohn writes an oratorio about Judas Maccabeus. And uh, Judas Maccabeus is known as having a hammer. And what happens is, is after his family have been 
uh, we'll just say brutally murdered because it's pretty graphic in the Maccabees. He goes out with a hammer like Thor and defeats all of his enemies <laughs> with a hammer. And um, it's, it's a pretty fantastical story. Um, but coincidentally enough, from that point on, the Maccabees uh, were the ruling party for the Israelites and they lived free without being under anyone else's power or authority for a period of time. And so again, Hanukkah becomes a big deal. Not only did God provide non-extinguishable light, but we were able to rule ourselves for once. Oh, you know, praise God, this is so cool. But then of course the Romans come and destroy everything. So, <clears throat> which is where we lead up to New Testament. How do you spell Mac? Mac oh, oh, man, you had M-A-C-C-A-B-E-S. Yeah. Okay. Did I okay. get that right? Okay. So now we get to have the, we're getting to the bad one. <laughs> um, so there's an announcement of this 10th plague that's going to get ready to take place. And this is, this is the beginning. You start at chapter 11. There's this announcement of this plague. And then you start to really see anthropologically a culture that is starting to create worships services, worship services. Uh, they call them festivals. Um, we have very little anthropological proof that very many of these festivals ever took place. When you get to like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there's a whole bunch of festivals that we don't know actually if they took place or if some tribe did it and then they wrote it down and they wanted to keep it for posterity. Like I always talk about the year of Jubilee, right? The uh, we don't really have any anthropological proof that they've done that, but there's a lot of these other ones that, depending on where they were geographically, we know that they did. Rosh Hashanah, for example, is one of those that we know that they practiced all the way through. Yom Kippur, that's another one. That's coming up, actually, next, I think it's next week. So Yom Kippur is another thing that they practiced all the time. We know these things existed. Purim, uh, for example, is a later uh, religious holiday that that had to deal with Esther, you know, and so each, now here's the part that's cool. Imagine for you all that every single high holy day was designed around a biblical story, and the whole year led up to those biblical stories. It's not that hard to imagine. We already do that. What are some of our high holy days? Easter. Easter. What's the story, the basic story? Jesus and right so there's easter so we, we know that that's coming and we do we christmas. make and we do christmas christmas is the birth, the birth of christ and there's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes in with that like what advent, advent. and what what are those things that are in advent that we hold in our minds luke chapter 2 talks about christ birth of christ yep yeah. Luke chapter 2 talks about specifically the shepherds, the shepherds. and the angels, angels. shepherds and angels. And then in Matthew, we talk about wise men, right? We got it all in our heads, but the wise men come after Christmas, and we call that epiphany, right? So we, we do stuff like this too, but now in the Jewish calendar, every day has something specific, but they're not set up in a calendar like ours tradition handed down tradition handed down and they think days as the day the moment the sun comes up and the moment the sun comes down they don't think like a roman calendar until much much later by the time the talmud is put together we start to have a roman calendar so then we knew when yom kippur was going to be we knew when rosh hashanah was going to be we knew when pasach was going to be Interestingly enough, at the same time the Talmud is being written and saying, here's when we have this calendar, the Romans start to appropriate Jewish holidays. Pesach is at the same time as, anybody know? Lent. So all of a sudden, Romans took over Pesach and appropriated it and said, well, we're not Jewish anymore, so this is what we're going to do. Jesus is... Last Supper is going to be the Seder feast, which we're going to read here in just a second. 
the Last Supper could have been a sacred feast. Absolutely. Uh, because we know that all of the Jews were in Jerusalem. Why would they've all been in Jerusalem? To celebrate. To celebrate the So it makes total sense that we say that the Last Supper was uh, a Seder feast. Um, and so uh, it, it's hard for us, though, because, again, in the aspect of Roman supersessionism, the, the idea was is that we say, oh, this works really well for us in our calendar because we're talking about Jesus' death and resurrection. And we know he had to have been in Jerusalem at this time because that's what he would have been doing. So we're going to call this Lent. And it's ours now. The Jews can't have it. It's ours. It's going to be Lent. And this is how, and we're going to change it from uh, the, the Seder feast to Holy Thursday or Monday Thursday. And then we'll add a tin and break Good Friday service in between that. And then by the time we get to Sunday, it, it'll make total sense. But these are all Jewish holidays that we co-opted. And they're created in this next two chapters. I'm making a big deal out of this because I've got 15 minutes left. And I want to read them to you. And then I want to talk a little bit about the worship. So I am a little animated about this subject. Let's go. Here we go. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring but one more plague upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. After that, he shall let you go from here. Thank you. And indeed, when he lets you go, he will drive you out from here one and all. Tell all the people to borrow each man from his neighbor and each woman from hers, objects of silver and gold. Ding, 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 ding. That should really resonate in your head. The Lord disposed the Egyptians favorably toward the people. Moreover, Moses himself was, was much esteemed in the land of Egypt. Hmm. It's the first time you've heard that in a, long time. in a long time. And among Pharaoh's courtiers and among the people. So evidently he was raised to a specific social status, which then gives proof that's why he was able to speak to Pharaoh without having to go through all the hoops. This is where they get the idea of the movie Prince of Egypt. Moses then said, thus says the Lord, toward midnight, I will go forth among the Egyptians and every first fort, slow down, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the millstones and all the firstborn of the cattle. And there shall be a loud cry in all the land of Egypt, such has never been or will ever be again, but not a dog shall snarl. Uh, at any of the Israelites, at man or beast, in order that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. That's your statement. That's your exhibition of power. We are no longer your slaves. Then all the courtiers of yours shall come down to me and bow low to me, saying, depart you and all the people who will follow you, and after that I will depart. And he left Pharaoh's presence in hot anger. Now the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you. In order that my marvels may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron had performed all these marvels before Pharaoh. But the Lord had stiffened the heart of Pharaoh so that he would not let the Israelites go from his land. I'm going to keep going. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, in the land of Egypt, this month shall mark for you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first of the months of the year for you. Notice that we're establishing a, a, passage, a, a process now. Speak to the whole community of Israel and say that you on the 10th of this, of this month, each of them shall take a lamb to a family, a lamb to a household. But if the household is too small for a lamb, let him share one with a neighbor who dwells nearby. In proportion to the number of persons you shall contribute for the lamb according to what each household will eat. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a yearling male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You, may, you shall keep watch over it until the 14th day of this month. And, and all the assembled congregation of the Israelites shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they are to eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in any way with water, but roasted head, leg, and entrails over the fire. You shall not leave any of it 
over until morning. If any of it is left until morning, you shall burn it. This is how you shall eat it, your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is a Passover offering to the Lord. I'm going to just pause right there. In Leviticus chapter 22, verses 17 to 25, we get the, the definition of an unblemished animal. I'm going to read that to you real quick. It's like to me the beginning of barbecue. Uh, it is the beginning of barbecue, which is why they like me. Uh, no, well, yeah, I forgot. This is the one I'm reading the wrong place, 17 to 25. So when you, when you do this, it's Leviticus chapters 22, verses 17 to 25. Remember, they're, they're basically quoting it. They're setting, they're setting the precedent to make the rule make sense. Here's the rule. Uh, speak to Aaron and son and all Israel people. When any man of the house or Israel of the strangers presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of the voted or any of the free will offerings that when they offer to the Lord, it must be to be acceptable in your favor, be a male without blemish from cattle or sheep or goats. <coughs> and you shall not offer any that has a defect or it will not be accepted in your favor. When a man offers from the herd of, of, or the flock, a sacrifice of well-being to the Lord for an explicit vow or as a free will offering, it must, to be acceptable, be without blemish. There must be no defect in it, anything blind or injured or maimed or with a, or with a, a, a win, a, a mark on it, a boil, scar, or scurvy, such you shall not offer to the Lord. You shall not put any of them on the altar as offerings. You may, however, present as a free will offering an ox or sheep with a limb extended or contracted, you know, because that happens, but will not be accepted for a vow. You shall not offer to the Lord with anything with its testes, bruised or crushed or torn or cut. You shall not have no such practices on your land, nor shall you accept such animals from a foreigner for offerings as food for your God. If they are mutilated, have a defect. They shall not be accepted in your favor. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 21, I had to write it down so I didn't forget. She said 15, 21? Yeah, 15, chapter 15, verse 21. Uh, it, it goes right back into this other idea. You shall consecrate to your Lord, your God, all male firstlings that are born in your herd and your flock. You shall must must not work your first oxen or shear your first link. You and your household shall eat it annually before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord will choose. But if it has a defect, lameness or blindness, any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. So this is a big deal. You've got this sacrificial animal. Now they've created a, a, a Seder feast. Um, they did you catch that? How you're supposed to eat the, the roasting of the thing? Standing with your rod and your shoes. That's right. Ready to <laughs> Yeah, that's, and, and, and you cannot leave any of it. Yeah. So that means you got to eat the entrails. And, <laughs> uh, I, mean, I mean, I I'm not a huge fan of haggis. My dad loves it, uh, but you know, just to think of it eating that. No, I'm just not. <laughs> and you can't. So you, you can roast it. So like this is barbecue 101, you know, so this is cool. I like it. Uh, there, there's some other problems that you run into with this. The, the bitter herbs, um, this this bitter herbs, uh, I had it, chametz. Chametz is the bitter herbs. No, maror. Maror is bitter herbs, um, is a part of the Seder feast. Um, this is like where you have horseradish or... Um, uh, it's more like parsley, but the, the objective here is, is that this is be, being created as a worship service. Notice how, how the Hebrew Bible does this. Oh, and we're stopping there for today. Uh, the, the, the objective here becomes this moment where God is telling them, okay, I'm going to take all these firstborn children and their cattle and anybody that, I mean, it doesn't matter if they're free or a slave. I'm doing this. But in order for this to happen, we have to create the Pesach. This is where the phrase Passover comes from. And the sacrificial lamb becomes the discussion. 
free without blemish. The only ones that knew how to do that were the Israelites. And we got this from the story of Joseph. Animal husbandry was the total, that was their total industry. Pharaoh actually asked all of Joseph's family to stay in Egypt so that they could take care of the animals. So the only ones that knew any of this stuff were the Israelites. Um, notice how he does this too. It's I've always remembered the story as in uh, you had to take your own, but if the person next to you didn't have one, you were to share it with them. This is Torah 101. In my Sunday school class on Sunday, we were having this conversation um, in the sense of the, the struggle that we run into when we talk about Jesus is, is that Jesus is preaching about a world that doesn't exist, right? It's a challenge to make the world exist. That's what the Torah does. We get this backwards. We think that the Torah says this is how it's supposed to be and this is how it was. The truth is the Torah was this is how we'd like it to be and we really want you to do this. So there's this, and, and how do we want you to do this? Well, we want to give you some, some guidelines. Pesach is a huge part of their culture. It's, it's everything for them. It's the true exhibition of God's power and the separation from everyone else in the world. From the highest power to the lowest one. You see how brilliant the writers are? From the courtiers to the slave girl. From Egypt to Israel. I will exhibit my power amongst the whole land. This is brilliant. You know, this is, this is, this is brilliant ways to do it. And then it shows you, here's the worship in order to do that. The lamb that the only the Israelites know how to do, we're going to share it. And the biggest thing I always tell you about the Torah is, is that the reason that it never gets followed was is that Torah was supposed to be extended to everyone. Not everybody had to be born a Jew, but if we were all extending hospitality, we would all recognize we're children of God. And how are they going to find that children of God? Well, by the extension of hospitality that God's chosen people were supposed to do. Not that I'm bitter, but this is, this is the problem. It's the same problem that Jesus gives to us. If, and it's, and you think it would be simple. Love your enemy. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are, these are not easy concepts. So it's a, in some sense, it's an unattainable goal, but it's the ultimate mission if we continue to do these things. And here's your first example of that in the aspect of worship. If the neighbor doesn't have the lamb's blood, then I'm supposed to extend it to them. Did it say that they had to be born of the tribes of Abraham? No. But they're all descendants of... Moses's family because yeah, I mean of Jacob's family because that's who came initially. Mm -hmm. So they're all descendants of, and that's definitely the one that this, this, that's the way they want the story to stay. They want you to stay there, knowing that this is where we are. I I think that what ends up happening is is in rabbinical teachings, the conversation then extends to. We know there had to be more than just Hebrews that were slaves. So this also became an opportunity for them to extend Torah to others that weren't necessarily lineage. Now that's a midrash. Okay. That's I wouldn't say that I'm that's outside the Bible. That would be outside the Bible. This would be just the discussion of God extended that to everyone there. And the Jews that had the opportunity could extend. This is where you hear this preach. This could extend that grace to all. And, and to incorporate them into the tribes. Because here's the coolest part about Torah, is I don't have to be born Jewish in order to become Jewish. I can become adopted by a family and become Jewish on my own accord. They know this. However, in this story, the story is setting up the ritual of the Seder and the Pesach, the festival of the, ends up becoming the festival of the tents and then booths and then we know is Passover. Um, so this is the setup of that. 
my favorite part of this, however, as far as going at this, is that the discussion of who gets to come to the feast is kind of a big deal. Um, that changes throughout their culture for a long time. So then when you get to the time of Christ, and Christ is making such a big deal about, and every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me, um, that it's an extension of kind of this story. Eat it hurriedly. You know, they would have had to do the, the Seder feast fast. It's not supposed to be a long meal, but there's a large. <laughs> it's hard to get out of quickly. Okay. So with, with that being said, are there any questions or comments before we stop for the day? We stopped at verse 13. Yeah, 12. About how long did the plagues, one plague last? Let's say the most plagues, locust, would you say a month, a year? Overnight? Uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a, that's, that's a long time to get all that mess I mean, cleaned up. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, God's good. The frog, the frog part is the one I always think of because you know that there's a stain. Uh, so so I've, I've seen scholars try to, to write this out and put it on a calendar and a timeline, um, and they all argue with each other. And so uh, the only time it actually gives you like days is like the days of darkness. It tells you there's three days of that. And then there's got to be some pause there. So they said, well, at least there was a day in between. I, I've heard it anywhere from two weeks to two years. Two years to me is a, is a very far-fetched idea. Uh, I would say maybe two months, I would feel more comfortable. So I, I could go two weeks to two months. Well, even three days of darkness was darkness. Like is like our darkness now. I mean, does it do 24 hour, you know, a day that's, 24 hours? Or? That's the problem. <laughs> we have no idea. Don't know. <laughs> right. So obviously the, the writers have now crossed over into a, an idea of days. For them, it would have been from the moment the sun rose and the sun, the sun, came, sun came down. They would not have had a Roman idea of time. Um, the other problem with this is, is in the Septuagint, I would say they did. If you have the Greek writers translating this, they would have had a sense of time. So in their mind, it would have been 24 hours or whatever it is, 20 something hours. So uh, daylight savings times messes us up because of the way that we think. But, uh, but th their time again is sun up, sundown. Um, Greeks would have thought that way too. So, mm -hmm. so the problem with it again, Kim, is I'm not trying to give you a, a fake answer. I'm just trying to tell you it's nobody knows. Nobody knows, and the Hebrew culture still puts it in the same category as the six days, right? Like, are those our days or are they God's days? You know, um, and the rabbis would say, uh -huh. <laughs> yes. we don't know. Charleston Heston got it done fast. He did. It was like two uh, hours. Yeah. Two hours. <laughs> a lot of two hours. He got that done in two hours. Isn't there an intermission in that movie somewhere? <laughs> yes. So, uh, okay. Any other questions about this before I push stop on the recording? All right. Here we go. We'll stop the recording.